Welcome to Writes for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, Pam here, just popping up with my little quick weekly writing update and writing tip before we get into the actual interview, which today is Joe Riccioni chatting to fellow fantasy author Amy Kaufman. And I know that this was uh, an interview that Joe was really excited to do. Amy is one of her go-to authors, and it's a really great chat between two very experienced authors uh, talking all about the writing process, the publishing world, and a whole lot more. So I know you're going to love this interview coming up with Joe Riccioni and Amy Kaufman. So for me, this week has really been all about wrapping up the first uh, round of the Turn Up the Tension course. Module 8 went up this week. It's an eight-week course. And it's just been such a joy to work with the eight authors who have been doing the course. It was synchronicity, really. It's an eight-week module, and I had eight authors enrolled for this particular round of the course. And they've just been so engaged and so enthusiastic about all the material, been giving me great feedback. And it's really been lovely to see the way that some of the elements and the the techniques that I'm using in the, the modules are actually really helping them to see their writing in a new light really helping them to think about engaging the reader and doing some before and after critiquing on their work and seeing the improvements. So that's been an absolute pleasure for me and it's been great to get that last module up. So now I'm just tweaking things and getting ready for the next round of Turn Up the Tension, which starts on May 10. So if anybody out there listening is interested in turning up the tension in your work, looking at upping the conflict, upping the level of tension and suspense, and also reader engagement. That's really what we're talking about to make sure that the readers are really glued to the page. You can find out more about that at pamelacook.com.au or just email me either through Rights for Women website or my own website and I can give you the info on that. So that's really been what's keeping me busy along with some mentoring that I'm doing with a few writers that I work with on and off and some more regularly. So that's been great. I love working with writers on their work and helping them get it up to where they want it to be before submitting to publishers or agents or also independently publishing. So this week's writing tip is about this whole idea of conflict. So one of the things that we talk about in module two of the course is internal and external conflict. And you really need both in order to keep the reader engaged all the way through the novel or through your story. So when we're talking about external conflict, we're really talking about the plot. What are the things that happen that actually create problems and obstacles for the character? And of course, you're going to have one or two fairly big obstacles happening. The big thing that's going to happen right near the beginning, which is your inciting incident, which is going to set off this string of events that is going to create a series of obstacles for the character in order to get them to the end of the story. So you need to have those external conflicts and those external obstacles happening as part of the plot. But then you also need this kind of internal conflict, this push and pull within the character that is going to 
see them reacting to those external obstacles, having them think about how they're going to react definitely along the way, meeting other obstacles that is, is also going to impact how they feel internally. And you want to create that kind of continual sense of push and pull inside the character. So they might decide to take one course of action and then realize that's the wrong course or not the right course for them at the moment and then go in a different direction. They might enlist the help of some of the other characters and then realize that's not the right way to go or that might create a new problem in itself, which then creates more internal conflict. So all the way through your story, you really want to have this push and pull between internal and external conflict. And one of the things I like to do once I've got that first draft done is to actually sit down and write out what are all the external obstacles that the character comes up against and what sort of internal conflict do those obstacles create for the character. And of course, that is going to evolve a lot of emotional tension and friction for the character, which I'm going to talk about in next week's writing tip. So this week's tip is to really Make sure that once you've got your draft done, that you have got sufficient external obstacles. You've got the big one at the beginning for your inciting incident, and then a whole series of other things, which following the mantra make things worse. And then also list down all the internal conflict that your character has as a result of these external conflicts and how that impacts her decisions and reactions and emotions. So hopefully that's a useful tip for some of you out there grappling with this idea of conflict. We are going to go on now and listen to Joe Riccioni and Amy Kaufman. And Amy has a brand new book coming out in May, which is called The Isles of the Gods. It's got an absolutely fantastic cover. So it's such a pleasure to have Amy Kaufman, a New York Times bestselling author on the podcast. Sit back, grab a cuppa and listen to Amy chat to guest host Joe Riccioni. So I am super excited because Amy... I have been a mega fan of yours ever since I first started toying with the idea of writing fantasy myself, but also working in the bookshop. I read your debut was with Megan Spooner and I read all of that series and I went on and read everything else you've ever written. So I'm so excited to have you on the Rights for Women podcast today. I just want to give listeners a little bit of your background So I mentioned that your debut was called These Broken Stars and it was co-authored with an American writer called Megan Spooner. Mm -hmm. And it won an Aurealis Award and was nominated for an Inky and named Huffington Post Best YA of 2013. And you have since then gone on to become a New York Times and USA Today and internationally best-selling author of sci-fi and fantasy, not just for middle grade, YA, but also adults. Now, would you consider Isles your latest book, a book for adults, or is it a crossover fiction, do you think? Oh, gosh. Look, I think that's actually a more complicated question than we think it is. I consider it to be YA, and when I'm writing, I'm addressing teen readers because I think that we need to be quite careful that we don't say we're writing YA, but then essentially elbow the teens out of the way to write for grown-ups. I'm, I consider myself to be writing for teens, but I am also very aware that there are surveys that show that over half of people buying YA books are adults. Yeah. I know that the adults are out there, but in my experience, I keep my eye on the audience for whom I'm writing and the kinds of adults, and I include myself in that number, who like YA will tend to like the way I'm writing the book. 
Yeah, for sure. I think that's, I was one of those people selling YA in the bookshop, Mm. but also reading it myself and selling it to adults and reading it myself as an adult. So definitely, I think I understand what you're saying there. Part of your bio is that you not only write these books, you you also have four degrees in four different subjects, law, history, literature, and conflict resolution. And you have a PhD and you're a podcaster. And you're a mum as well. So you have a little girl. And I'm always really amazed at people who can multitask like that. And I think a lot of listeners kind of, because a lot of listeners I know, a lot of people I teach are mums as well, and they want to write. How do you manage all those balls, Amy? How do you keep those balls in the air at the same time? Oh, look, I mean, with varying degrees of success, I should say the PhD is only halfway through. So let's see if I juggle all the way to the end. I think there are a few different answers to that. And The first answer and the one that I think is the most important to give, particularly if I'm talking to other parents, is to say that I write full-time and my husband is a full-time dad. So in part, the way that I have enough time to do stuff is I have the kind of support that society more often offers a man. I have a pit crew looking after me and I would never, ever want anyone to think, she's doing it, why can't I do it, without understanding and being transparent about the fact that, well, I do it with a lot of help. Beyond that, I am really good at project management, but in the way that you become good at something that you're actually very bad at and it's a skill that you've had to acquire. Yeah. So I remember one of my early jobs as a mediator, I was great at the mediation, the bit where you actually had to get the people into the room, the warring parties, and get them to talk to each other. But the bit where you had to keep all the paperwork lined up and do all the project management, remember to ask for the information, the statutory 14 days before, atrocious at that. And I actually went to my boss and said, this is bringing everything else undone and I need a time management course. And I don't mean like an hour at lunchtime, I need help. And he went, I'm so glad you feel that way. And enrolled me in a process design and quite a high level management course and actually learned project management. And I use project management because I'm not one of those people who wants to work 24-7 as I have a little girl. She's little. She's only going to be little once. I have a husband who I love and would very much like to stay married to, which necessitates showing up every so often. I know I have friends. I have family. I, there's a beautiful world outside. I want to go for walks in. Yeah. I don't want to find myself burning the midnight oil constantly. So there's a lot of project management and it's such a cliche, but if you're juggling a lot of balls, know which ones are glass, know which ones are plastic, (laughs) let the plastic ones fall. Yeah. On one of my podcasts, Amy Kaufman on writing, I actually did an entire episode called Writing When You Have No Time. Mm. And rather than it just being my opinion, because I felt like back when I was working full time, writing full time, doing everything full time, I would not have wanted to have heard from a full time writer on, oh, yeah, sure, Amy, teach us how you write when you have no time this woman who has all the time in the world. So I actually put the call out to a bunch of mum friends, other authors and creatives and said, how do you do it? And they all talked about how they fit it into the cracks and where and when they get down words. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've spoken on your podcasts. I listened to both of them. They're both excellent. The one with Kate Armstrong and the one that you've done, Amy Kaufman on writing. They're both, Amy Kaufman on writing is particularly good because it's nice short episodes and Mm. very instructional or emerging writers can really get an awful lot from that. But you do talk about care for writers. I am going to ask you about the book in a minute, but I am, while we're on this topic of juggling many balls, Mm. being transparent about how that how difficult that is you've recently done quite a lot of talking about 
care and self-care for writers, which I think it's overlooked a lot, especially with people yes. who just sign deals, like myself, <laughs> who yeah. has to put, have to put out a book a year. You know, and you're sometimes doing more than that. You're doing more than a book a year. So have you changed your opinion on that recently compared to when you first started out? No, look, I think I've always... It's always been at the forefront of my mind, which I think is why I'm still here. Yeah. 10 years and 19 books yeah. in, I'm still here because I think it's so important to look after yourself and such an area of passion for me that I'm actually in the middle of developing a course about it that I'm going to be teaching because oh, wow. I was trying to think about what's the one thing that I really want to speak to other creatives on mm. and it is ways to create like a joyful and sustainable creative life. And... For me, a lot of that is about rest as well as work. And yeah. it, that's a very counterintuitive thing. You might feel like you have no time to rest because there's so much to do, but you do not get more efficient the longer and longer you work. For me, it's about taking the right breaks. It's about God, my mindset is such a corporate word, but it is about having the right mindset. It's about writing for yourself, writing things that you love, writing for joy, not letting in that idea that you've just got to suffer in order to make art because I really don't buy into yeah. that. Yeah. And it's about not comparing either because you never know what's going on in someone else's life or someone life. else's career. Yeah. However much you might think you do, you you absolutely don't. Because I have both been the person with things going on that people don't know about and I've been the person making assumptions and then think, finding out later that I didn't know what was happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think as well other people set the bar and knowing that you may not be able to meet those, what publishers expect of that writer may not be realistic for another writer. Just because I mean, they can't you also, but you don't know what that, that writer's doing or achieving. Yeah, you know, yeah. when you think that you do, you might think, oh, my goodness. I remember saying to a friend a couple of years ago, how on earth did you produce that book so quickly? And she said, oh, it was a trunk novel. So all I had to do was pull it out and polish it up. Oh, no yeah. one else watching her do it knew that. Yeah. They all assumed she'd written it from scratch. And so I'm not a particularly fast drafter. And so I was thinking maybe there's something I can learn here. Nope. Here's what I prepared earlier is what I could learn there. But yeah. You know, never know. I spent years doing IVF and being really ill. And um, I wasn't particularly talking about that at the time because uh, I was miserable. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, and my particular version of misery didn't want company in that situation. Yeah. But it probably looked on the outside like nothing could have been better. There she is touring the world, hundreds of readers every night. It's, yeah. Mm -hmm. But then I go home and get the IVF drugs out of my bar yeah. fridge and jab mm -hmm. myself in the tummy. And tell you what I would have swapped to not need to do yeah. that. You just, you never know. And the, I think the moment that you really embrace that and really be able to run your own race, I think yeah. a lot changes. I think yeah. it allows you also to start celebrating for other people. And yeah. you're always happier when you do. Yeah. And I noticed that I was listening to a podcast to do with Jay's launch. And he was saying about keeping your eyes on your own words, which I thought was mm -hmm. really wise advice. Yeah. Trying not to look at what everyone else is doing, trying to keep focused on your work, your craft, mm -hmm. what you're producing. And running, yeah. like you say, it just matches what you're saying, which is running your own race, which is. Uh, yeah, really it's a lot happier when you do. And I think as well, like reading a book is not a bucket list item. Readers don't read a book and say, there, now I've read a book and I'm going to off to learn to skydive next. They read a book <laughs> and they want another book. Someone else's success is not yeah. your loss. You know, that you didn't lose the one slot that person was ever going to have available for a book. 
Yeah. They can read yours next. It's all good. Yeah. Stacey McEwen and I were talking about this. We were at Scone Literary Festival this weekend, just gone. Mm. We were talking about this idea of rising tide floats all boats. But, yeah, um, absolutely. Particularly apt metaphor, considering we're going to be talking about Isles <laughs> in a minute. Yeah. Uh, but we've got very similar books launched at very similar times and uh, they're going to just help sell each other and doing promotion. Absolutely. So, you know, it's quite a, a positive thing. It's not a competitive thing like no. other in the marketplace. It does. Books don't match other products in the marketplace, mm-hmm. which might be competitive. They don't. People are going to finish Stasis book and look around and think, wow, that was great. What else is there like that? answer is yours reading is also i guess to keep extending the metaphor reading is not like playing pokemon you're not trying to read one non-fiction and one fantasy and one thriller and we like what we like and we read a lot of what we like i think i haven't met stacy but i'm a big fan of hers online she's hilarious Uh, and she also is really generous she supports other books and given how little you control you may as well be happy and you're a lot happier when you're being kind and having that sort of outlook of supporting other people yeah, absolutely. So tell us how you got onto fantasy, why you became a fantasy spec fic writer. I'm interested in childhood reading and maybe a book that was the key book in your life. Oh, gosh. I was one of those kids. I got reading from my parents, but I did not get spec fic from my parents at all. My yeah. my mum read a lot of fiction and my dad, he read some fiction, he read some biographies, he liked nonfiction. And I was there at the bookshop immediately drawn from a very young age to fantasy and sci-fi and anything that was set in another world. And it was just who I was from when I was very small. My dad gave me a copy of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea when I was 11. And that was what got me into sci-fi because it was the first sci-fi I remembered reading and thinking, oh, this could really happen. This doesn't require magic that I don't have. Mm. But I also remember I picked up Tamara Pierce, who was incredibly influential for me. I picked up Garth Nix, who was incredibly influential for me. But I would walk around my school library and forget judging a book by its cover. I was judging books by their spines (laughs) and just pulling out every fantasy book I could find and reading them until the covers fell off. Anne McCaffrey was probably my proto-author, if you like. I used to go to Ireland with my parents because my mom is Irish and she would like us to go back every few years. And my suitcase would be half empty because books were heaps cheaper in Ireland. And so I would go and I would go to the Waterstones on Grafton Street in Dublin and just buy every new Anne McCaffrey that had come out. I'd be, I have saved all my money and then bring home this suitcase full of them. I've still got them all sitting inside. Wow. And. Her world building was so rich and at the time I had no idea her work was diverse because her work was what I was reading. We look back now and, of course, there are many things about Anne McCaffrey's work that that could be updated and that no doubt she would update if she were yeah, alive today yeah. uh, because she was also the first person I encountered who wrote both fantasy and science fiction that had characters of colour and queer characters and characters with disabilities yeah, right, and yeah. women right at the front of all of her adventures. Yeah. And at the time I just read it and went, oh, yeah, okay, checks out. And it was only later that I realised, oh, it, she was very different to what was going on around her. So I'm very grateful that she's what I picked up early because she shaped me for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you say that those writers would eventually go back and if they had the chance they would write rewrite sections of their book i remember hearing john marsden say that he would completely rewrite tomorrow when the war began to not have that kind of 
idea of Indonesia as the enemy or the Asian people as the enemy sort of thing now. I heard him interviewed and saying that he would definitely change that. I don't know how you could. It's because books are unfortunately a product of their time and place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And even people don't think fantasy can be because it's just all made up. But of course, we're Mm, products of our time. We're the creators. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And you know what? We're all continually on a journey and it's okay to have got things wrong in the past. But once you know better, you do better. And I think for a lot of us, I mean, it, I don't think there could be a person alive who wouldn't look back at things that they thought or laughed at or said when they were younger and didn't think, well, I certainly wouldn't say that today. I certainly wouldn't think that was funny today. Mm. And if there is someone like that out there, I think probably a bit more self-examination might be in order for that <laughs> yeah. person. But I look at someone like Anne McCaffrey and I think on one hand, you don't want to not note it because there are things in her books now that I'm like, maybe not today, but she also was so forward thinking and so progressive in so many ways that it's very easy to believe that if she was writing today, she'd be on the forefront of that again. She was revolutionary once. Yeah. I'm sure she would be twice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, let's tell us a little bit about Isles then, which is your latest book coming out in May this year. Mm, that's um, right. Yeah, and I've been very lucky to get an advanced reader copy and I'm, I absolutely loved it. It was a, such Thank a- you rollicking adventure it was one of those page turners I couldn't put it down it kept me up all night <laughs> thanks Amy <My laughs> can't pleasure. afford to have that right now thank you <laughs> but I did oh, but it, yeah. and so that's exactly what authors are aiming for really so tell us yeah. about Isles look rollicking adventure is exactly what I wanted it to be I think we've all had a rubbish few years there have been good things in it but also we're tired and this was me writing the book that I wanted to read. It was me writing a book that is full of adventure and romance and chase scenes and really cool locations like underground clubs and the high seas and full of banter. And it's intended to be fun. One of my critique partners sent it back to me and said, I didn't know I needed it until I read it. And that's (laughs) exactly how I felt. It is set in a world that is like our own, but not our own. And in sort of about the 1920s, give or take. And yeah. it it follows a girl called Sally. She's a sailor on a tall ship. And she is minding her own business when her ship is taken over by a prince. He is annoying as all get out. He is also a very powerful magician and he's also annoyingly handsome. Uh, he needs the ship in order to take part in a pilgrimage that will ensure that war doesn't take place and then everything hits the fan all at once and suddenly she might be the only one who can keep this prince alive and the only one who can stop a war so she ends up stuck with him yeah and i just love the banter between sally and leander the prince it's a beautiful slow burn which i think a lot of fantasy readers really appreciate but um, i do I love the fact that you've also you've managed to combine in one book these kind of high seas adventure, but these beautiful 1920s touches, the clothes, the clubs, the drinks, really cool scenes in the nightclub, which I wouldn't have dreamed of putting those two things together. I would have had the high seas adventure. But I love the fact that I did, for me, having a high seas sort of pirate sea chases and that kind of thing I wouldn't have thought to put that in the 1920s so what was the 1920s thing where did that come from Uh, look it came from two different prompts one is that one of the reasons that the entire book came about is 
I'm, I grew up sailing. I took my first steps on a boat. I love sailing. I'm always learning about it. And I learned that there were these boats called wind jammers that operated all the way up to the 1920s. So between the two world wars and they were tall ships, as you imagine a tall ship when you think of one with all the masts and all the matchsticks rigging. And they were still doing cargo runs then because they were very cheap to run. You didn't need any fuel. There was no engine. There was only a small crew. And if you had something like, say, timber that wasn't going to go off and it it didn't matter if it took a little longer to transport, then you would send it via a wind jammer. And there was this Australian photographer called Alan Villiers who had been a sailor in his younger years and he learned learned about the wind jammers because he'd been on them, but he realised that they were fading in the 1920s. So he got himself back on board one and then several and he took photos. And so we've got this incredible photographic record of all of these people on these boats who they look modern. If you were to Photoshop them into a photo of a bunch of hipsters going clubbing today, you would not notice. You would think they belonged, but then they're on a tall ship. And that was fascinating to me. And I started thinking, what would it take to keep those kinds of ships going? And the answer for me was magicians who could control the weather, which is how we end up with the magic yeah. system. Yeah. And the 1920s were this this period of change where everyone had just come back from war. Everyone was being asked to step back into the roles that they'd just gotten to step out of, whether it was women getting to work or whether it was people being allowed to interact across class lines or race lines or whatever it was. And they were all being told, cool, thanks for that, back in your box. And everyone was trying to work out who they were and who they were going to be. And I like that sense of a world that was on the cusp of that change. Yeah, yeah. It's always a good time to um, base a novel around because you've automatically got that conflict that we need Mm -hmm. novels, but uh, you've got it in society all around your characters as well. Yeah, I yeah, love exactly. the combination of you've got the steamers, but you've got the sail ships and you've got the autos and you've got the horse and carriage still in, mm-hmm. in, in your books. So. And the thing is, all of that happened in our world. We find yeah. it peculiar now, but this world that I write about where you've got like neon lights on the main street yeah. and horse-drawn carriage in the back alleys, that's real. That that happened on our in our world. Yeah. So yeah. on that point... A lot of people say, oh, it must be great writing fantasy because you don't have to do any research. Uh-huh. <laughs> people say that to me all the time. Yeah. But I've got the feeling that you did tons of research for this book. My question is, when is it enough? Because sometimes you can be a bit research heavy. And also your own sailing experience, because you were so well versed in sailing. I love the book because it introduced me, like you just put enough in where it's not stuff that I wouldn't understand, but in the context, the sailing terminology, I can understand it. Yeah. Did that come from your editor saying, hey, Amy, time back your sailing knowledge? Or were you instinctively don't want to overload the reader with too much research or too much fact? question. I worked for many years as a sailing teacher. So I've got a good sort of sense, I think, of what people who haven't sailed before will and won't understand. But my approach was I wrote the book as though my reader did understand sailing because Mm. a lot of it is through Sally's point of view and she is a sailor, so she's not going to stop and explain things. When I did need to explain something, I made sure that I was in the point of view of one of the other characters who didn't know how to sail so that it could plausibly be explained. But I think there's always this temptation to show your work 
And that's, I think, what you need to watch for, whether it's your sailing research or your world building or whatever. There's this temptation just because you found it all out or built it all or created it all to tell the reader all about it, whereas really you just want to share 10%. So I treat it like anything else, which is I think the reader senses if there is or isn't more than you've put on the page. If there isn't more, they mightn't be thinking to themselves, "Mm, this feels flimsy, but I think in some part of their brain they think, this doesn't feel like it's got roots. I'm not sure I believe it. And I think if you do know what's going on, that shows up. I often take the approach of I write as though the person who is reading my book has already read my notes and that stops me from explaining too much. It stops me from offering too much exposition. I just assume that they'll know what I'm talking about and then I give it to my critique partners And 99% of the time, no one asks for clarification. Oh, that's good. Give us some tips about how, do you start with an image? Do you start with words? Do you start with reading? How do you hold all your research together? Do you use Scrivener, mood boards? Oh, this is the bit where I'd love to be able to tell you about a system, but there's no system. (laughs) There's there's nothing. It's all just in my brain somewhere. And then sometimes it's not in my brain and I really wish it was, but... I, when I think I am that's reassuring, though, for re- listeners to hear because yeah. people think there's some ra- miraculous trade secret that people have. No. no, and look, I think that especially earlier on in your writing career, it, you can waste a lot of time trying to follow other people's techniques because what we all want, and I include myself in this, is we all desperately want there to be some golden rule or some magic way that things will work. And the truth is there isn't. There just are lots of different approaches and you keep trying them on until you find the one that suits you this day for this book. And then when you write the next book, it's probably going to be slightly different again. And I, so I'm always very wary of being prescriptive about how I do things because I don't want anyone to waste their time trying to follow it or worse thinking that there's something wrong with them because they try to follow it and it doesn't work. Yeah. You know, what I do is, and I I talk about my general building at great length in Amy Kaufman on writing, and in Pub Dates, Kate and I also have a, a couple of episodes where we talk about this at much greater length than I will now, but I do three passes. And the first pass for me is the vibes pass. I'm just... Maybe I'm watching movies that remind me of it. I'm reading very broad texts. I'm on Wikipedia at best, and I'm just gathering up things that sort of flavor it. And I'm thinking about what tropes exist in this kind of story that I love, that sort of thing. And then in my second pass, I'm being more specific. If I've decided that I want there to be a ball and it's set at a particular time, perhaps I'm gathering more examples of that sort of thing. And my third pass comes after I've written when I look up all the things that I discovered during the writing of the book that I needed to know because I do not stop while I'm writing. I just write TK because that's the the editing and the copywriting sort of combination. It's a combination of letters that don't occur naturally in any English word. And then I go through and I look at all my TKs and I look up the bits and pieces that I needed to know. What do you mean TK stands for what? What does that mean? I don't know if it stands for anything, but it's literally if you control F, you will not find the letters TK together in any word. 
in English. And so it's a helpful marker. It means that as I'm writing, I'm working on in the very early stages at the moment of a historical. And if I want someone to brush her teeth, I am not going to stop and figure out how we brush our teeth in 1919. I'm going to write TK, teeth brushing details, and move on because otherwise nothing ever gets done. And I might find later I actually don't want her to brush her teeth because I want to start the scene after she's run out the front door, in which case what a waste of time. So... Yeah, and I think that's such a priceless uh, piece of advice, actually, because so many emerging writers do all the research up front and it becomes research heavy and then you end up editing Mm. that out and that's precious. It can be weeks of going down that rabbit hole, right? (laughs) It either goes wrong in one of two ways. One is that you have to ditch a whole lot of stuff that you worked hard on, but the other option, potentially worse, is you don't ditch it because you worked so hard on it and so you leave it in when it really shouldn't be there. So. No, look, I'm tremendously lazy and make up a lot of things and I very rarely research anything that I can't just Google on the spot. And I don't think that's a terrible confession. I'm the internet can tell you absolutely anything. (laughs) Look, for the historical that I am currently in the very early stages of creating, that is not true at all. There is so much detailed research going on. I am I have a degree in history, so I'm enjoying doing that. I also have an incredible research assistant who is helping me dig into American archives that I couldn't get to. So that one is very specific. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was you seem to have a fascination for both in both of your The Isles of the Gods and in The Other Side of the Sky, the duology that you wrote about gods. Now, I know gods and religion come into fantasy a lot. Mm. For a lot of fantasy writers, they are, they create religious systems and it's sometimes the backdrop, it's sometimes to the fore of the world. But in your, what's so different about you is that you actually often make your character, your gods become a character in the novel. So I'm interested in what, where fascination with the with gods come from gods as a character yeah are you religious at all look i think it it came from in in part to be honest just from early exposure to david eddings uh the bulgariad is was a series i really i read and reread as a kid and of course you've got interventionist gods who walk around and get involved there i also think that When writing science fiction, one of the gifts that sci-fi can give us is that in taking what we are wondering about today and projecting it far into the future and looking at the various ways it might play out, we can ask questions about who we are today and the decisions we're making today. And I think that in a fantasy world, the way of doing that exaggeration can sometimes be through religion. It can sometimes be that when you take something and you make it bigger and larger than life and give people sometimes quite polarised opinions about it, it allows us to ask questions about today. And I don't write books to teach lessons or convey messages. I write books to ask questions, often Mm. they're questions I have, and it is up to the reader how they answer those questions for themselves. I enjoy my conversations with readers about how they answer the questions. But I suppose in part, having something much larger than life offers that same opportunity to blow a question up and put a focus on it. But Absolutely, yeah. Also, it's just, it's fun. I'm always looking yeah. for the biggest, most dramatic, most exciting way to to tell stories. And in this particular case, put a god who's capable of flattening an entire country in there and you're off to the races. It's going to be exciting. Yeah. The other thing that religion does, of course, is to allow for extreme behavior in your characters. 
so that anything that makes your characters act in a kind of otherwise an extremist way and we see it in the real world don't we we see religion causing people to act in very extreme ways and there's like a good plot a plot point yeah i think it motivates people and we we see religion motivating people to act in all kinds of ways from the simple and kind through to the complex and not at all kind and I think in in any fiction story, you're looking for ways to put things under a magnifying glass. And, yeah, I think having characters, you know, as you say, who are gods, who are incredibly powerful and of whom there are great expectations allows you to magnify questions and issues and, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a lot Um, of fun. So my next question is about craft of writing because I know we've got a lot of Mm -hmm. listeners who really love listening to authors talk about craft and it's the age-old question which has got a lot more about it now of whether you're a plotter or a pantser and I recently saw somebody posted a graph on Instagram that sort of divided plotting and pantsing into subcategories where on the scale (laughs) where are the so there was like intentional Mm -hmm. plotters and intent and subconscious plotters and all different various variations Mm -hmm. where on the scale would you sit do you think or is it different for everybody? Yeah, I think I'm actually a little wary of anything that divides stuff up like that too much because I view all of my writing craft, my approach to all kinds of things, as a toolbox rather than a prescriptive roadmap. It's, it's why when I'm doing craft stuff in Amy Kaufman on writing, I'll often do episodes that are, these are three ways or four ways to do a particular thing because every story requires something a little bit different. I would kill to have that not be true I would love it if I just had a formula and I did it that way and it always worked but that's just not true I don't think it's true for anyone so I think of it as a toolbox and when I get stuck I can reach into the toolbox and pull out being more plotty being more pantsy I can move around um generally I lean more toward outlining than not but I have co-authored with three different people, none of whom do outlines. So <laughs> I, in those cases, we meet in the middle because you can't just be handing a manuscript back and forth with no plan whatsoever because then you get it and you're like, oh, so that person's dead, huh? All right, <laughs> bold move. That's uh, great. You know, I had plans. <laughs> and, and that's what we're trying to avoid. And so we will join the dots plotting if you like when i'm writing on my own i do outline in more detail it's almost like my draft zero my i'm trying to think my outline for the sequel to isles it's a duology so i'm on book two at the moment and i would say my outline is probably about eight or nine thousand words on what will be probably a ninety thousand word first draft so it's quite detailed and is that an outline that you would probably give to your the professionals in your life as well like agents and publishers who want to know what or is it just for you that's just for me I'm I was very cheeky with Isles I I just really sold it to them on the idea but this was an editor this was my seventh book with my editor so by this point when I say to her I've got an idea and it's great and here's what it is and I can write it she doesn't have a concern about the I can write it bit. She just yeah. wants to know yeah. it's the type of book that she wants to publish. So, no, the the outline is generally for me. I have some quite close critique partners who I might mm-hmm. occasionally talk through something like that with if we were on retreat, looking for moments where they can soup it up or where they say, but why is she going there or what have you? That's a little chance to 
idiot proof yeah. it before I start. But generally it's just for me and I write it. And, yeah. 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 And how do you go about, we'll come back to writing groups and writing and working with mm-hmm. others in a minute but there was a question from some someone on my Instagram account that asked me to ask you about how you handle moving from the first draft to the subsequent drafts how do you handle moving around big chunks of information that might not be a very easy question to ask because I'm sure it varies from novel to novel do you wait and get response from your editor first or critique partners or look so I'm, I'm very lucky that my critique partners have all been doing this a long time and any one of them is as as good at doing it as most editors out there just because they've all been in, in the industry for yeah. so long. So when I finish a first draft, I will tend to hand it over to my editor and at the same time I'll usually hand it over to two or three critique partners and then when everyone's notes come back, I'll consolidate them, I'll get on the phone, I'll talk through them, I will make sure I've got a really solid plan for how I want to proceed and what I want to take on board and what I don't because... Sometimes something is they've pinpointed the right trouble point, but they haven't pinpointed the right solution. Or sometimes they're suggesting something that is totally valid, but just not the direction I am choosing for the book, even though it could be good if you went that way. And sometimes they are saying things as they did with Isles. What is that entire character doing there? Or (laughs) you're not doing enough cool stuff on land. Have you considered going to a nightclub? Which has turned out to be one of the most iconic scenes of the book. I will get all that stuff. I will. There's a lot of talking, a lot of thinking, and then I will start executing my plan with a giant to-do list. I usually, and this is just me, everyone does it differently, I try and get my to-do list into the document as soon as possible because I love just one document. So I'll tend to mark it up as much as I can. And then for subsequent revisions, so the final version of IELTS is version 6.5, so I did a lot of revisions on that Mm -hmm. book. The subsequent revisions, I'll keep marking up the manuscript, but often for my final sort of one or two passes, I will... And I've never heard of anyone else doing this system, so I think this is just me. But I get index cards and because I'm usually by then down to maybe between six and ten things that I want to resolve for the whole book. And so I'll have an index card for each character. So it might be for Sally, the protagonist, it'll be track her journey with magic, track her relationship with X and so on. And then I might have other cards that relate to, say, the religion. Is the religion being mentioned, because it's such a part of the fabric of this world, is it being mentioned in an offhand, everyday life kind of way in chapters? And when I come to a chapter, I will pull out the three or four index cards that relate just to that chapter, and I'll line them up beside my laptop, and I will be looking at them the whole time as I'm giving the chapter a read through. That's Uh, very organised, Amy. That's impressive. (laughs) It's When you watch it in person, it looks very haphazard, but... For me, I find it hard to hold things in my head. One of my things I'm always revising for is making the emotion feel more visceral Mm. because I tend to be pretty light on that in my first draft. And so one of my cards will just say, are they feeling things in their bodies? And so that'll probably sit there for every chapter. Yeah, amazing. And obviously you do take on feedback and you you have these respected reading partners that I think a lot of emerging writers would love to have that relationship with people, but it's something you build and it's something you come across by chance in the process of your life. And it's some of them work and some of them don't work. But you, yeah, absolutely. you said in your acknowledgements that it was Mary Lou who was constantly asking you about this book. <laughs> yes, yes. I love that, that the fact that she wouldn't let you drop it. 
No, Marie is one of my oldest writing friends. For listeners who might immediately twig, she's the author of Legend and Warcross and Sky Hunter and her upcoming Stars and Smoke. She's a writing genius. She's amazing. And, but she is also one of my oldest writing friends and one of the people I run to when things go well or when things don't. And yeah, I showed her the first couple of chapters of Isles right back when I wrote them. And she would come back to me. We talk every month or so, and at least, and sometimes we talk every day if things are going either very well or very badly. But yeah, she would come back over and say, yeah, but what about that story? What about that story? And I was always trying to get it right. I think I just wasn't good enough yet and had it put aside. But are they pretty you know, similar I'll, to the chapters as they stand now? The chapters, the early chapters that she saw, have they changed quite a lot? Uh, I put a beginning onto it. So those chapters have shifted back. Yeah. But the chapter that she saw was of Sally's boat, the Elizabeth sliding out of the harbour, the final image being the lights twinkling on the water and the gramophone music mm. rolling over over the harbour towards them. And that was what she loved and it's still in there. Yeah, so, it's, so, it, yeah. It's, the, it's the heart of the sort of image that's at the heart of the novel, I think. Yeah, um, and the whole book is dedicated to my writing group. There's a group of names in the front, that's my writing group, who yeah. I dedicated it to them because in lockdown I, I sat in listen, as the two of us on Zoom, we can see this tiny office that I'm in. <laughs> uh, every day I would get up and walk down to the bottom of the garden and sit in the same room with the same view and try to dig out some more creativity, which was not easy. It wasn't easy for any of us. Mm. And they were the ones who were there on our little group chat every single day being, come on, Ames, settle up, you can do it, write some more. Uh, and I think it's so important, even if the people aren't writing the same books as you or mm-hmm. aren't even published or what, it's just the cheer squad, isn't it, that you need. is such yeah. an old job sometimes. Absolutely, absolutely. And I remember saying to a writer who is know each other how do you all get to be critique partners how do all these published authors all seem to know each other and say hi and how do you ever become a part of that and what she told me was absolutely true which was she said we were all babies together we all came in together and you come up with your class we i i why i debuted in 2013 i still have lots of 2013 debut friends yeah and i think the answer is because sometimes there is a feeling that the writers that are more experienced than you, they're all full up and they're lo- not looking for more critique partners or they're not looking for new people. And that may be true. It's not always, but it may be true. But almost everyone I know, the friends and critique partners that they made them at the beginning yeah, and you all come up together and you all learn together and you all stuff up together and you all celebrate together. Celebrating and, each other's successes together as well is really important. Yeah, for real. Uh, okay, just going back to craft, which is your favourite mm. part of the process? Is it raw material, drafting raw material? Is it coming up with ideas? Is it? Are you? Have you got loads of ideas mm. all the time? I tend to meet writers who have tons of ideas and never enough time to get them all down, or people a bit more like <laughs> me who have one idea that they cannot let go until it's finished and then move on to the next idea. So that's, I'm always fascinated because you're working on multiple books often at the same yeah, time. So sure I'm always fascinated because I'm, even people are saying to me, like, my next book's out in October, but they're saying, what's your next work? And I'm like, I actually don't know yet because I cannot think of the next thing. <laughs> right. This one's put to bed and I know I've got to stop that. I've got to move on to the next thing before. I am. Um... Yeah, I think I've usually got a couple of things that I'm so obsessed with that I have to be writing them. And then 
I usually have a few ideas that are in formulation. And it's why I struggle when someone, and I'm often asked, especially when I'm speaking to writers groups or to schools, how long does it take you to write a book? And Mm. I'm working on two books at the moment because I'm quite behind at the moment because I had long COVID for seven or eight months and got very little work done during that time. So I'm a bit of a scramble over the uh, Chateau Kaufman at the moment, but that's okay. We'll catch up. But I'm writing those two, and once I stop, then I will start working properly on this historical, and I'll start writing up a sample to to try and sell it. But I had the idea for it in 2019 when I was feeding my daughter before bed, and I have been thinking about it. I would think about it every night with this tiny baby in my arms, and I've been thinking about it ever since. And the next YA that I would like to write after I, I finish the Isle sequel, and I'm also writing one that's under contract with Meg Spooner at the moment. The next YA that I would like to write, I've probably been thinking about it for six months already and I probably won't start it for another year. So I've usually got a couple that I'm just ruminating on and gathering up the little twigs that I need to build the nest. So I'll yeah. I'll walk past something and think, oh, that's going to be useful. I must pop it in the file and come back to it later. And when I say the file, lest anyone think I'm organised, the file is a draft email that sits inside my gmail that has no organization of any sort inside it it's literally i just hit enter and write another line of a thought i've had it's <laughs> terribly disorganized on my phone and then it links to my email and i get that i, I mean, get yeah. weird emails coming through and i think i've been hacked because it will say <laughs> band-aids 1980s or something right. or 20s band-aids did they use them question mark <laughs> Right. And yeah, (laughs) I think, look, I think there probably is a way to be more organized than I am. But I also, I think that it's really easy to spend so much time looking for the right tools or the right systems or the right rules. And actually, the answer is probably just do it. Yeah. Just get moving in whatever way works for you is absolutely fine. Yeah. I know we've got to cut it fine because you've got a little baby to put to bed and we've all been there. I know what that (laughs) feels like. So I think I'm going to just pick my next most favourite burning question. It's two questions. Mm-hmm. Top advice for emerging writers and mm-hmm. preferably any reading fantasy recommendations from Australian writers that you've read recently that you love. Oh, okay. Gosh, where do I begin? All right. I'll, I'll start with the reading stuff I want to recommend. Stuff I have loved lately, and I'm going to stay in the YA space because that's where mm-hmm. I'm writing. Yeah. A Hunger of Thorns by Lily Wilkinson, which is out April. What's the description? It's witchy and botanical and sapphic and features a girl who goes into an abandoned power plant full of magic. And it is, I, I first read it some years ago. I got an early look and it is spectacular. Now, Lily doesn't always write contempt fantasy, does she? she always- this is Lily's first fantasy and yeah. it's Oh, I'm not even sure I want to say 16th, 17th, 18th book or something like that. And you can, you could really feel the craft in every word. It's an incredible book. I would also obviously recommend Nightbirds by Kate Armstrong. That's yep. uh, my co-host on Pub Dates. It is a 1920s tinged fantasy uh, set in, in a secondary world. Think prohibition, but the prohibition is on magic. Yeah, it's on my reading list. This is, it just came oh, out. It's, yeah. It it just came out and it's about a group of girls who have the ability to bestow magic on you with a kiss if you can pay the right price. It is fierce and feminist and gorgeously sumptuously written and I love it. 
I would also recommend Only a Monster by Vanessa Len. Yeah. We're finally about to get, I say finally, it's the, it's a perfectly normal interval. I'm just impatient. Yeah. We've just seen the cover for Never a Hero, which is the sequel. Only a Monster is a book about what if Buffy, but from the point of view of the vampire, and it's got time travel and it's got this fantastic cast of characters who you just really enjoy. So that one's right up there. I could go forever. I could keep recommending forever. I'll stop myself there because otherwise. Yeah, I'm actually listening to Only a Monster on Audible at the moment. So How good is it? Yeah, it's brilliant. Mm. Really great concept. Yeah, yeah. And advice for writers? Advice for writers. Or top piece Um, that you can think of? Look, aside from what has, it's always interesting to see what the thread is that runs through an interview. And I feel like the thread through this one has been, don't wait for systems, don't wait for rules, just get some miles behind you. But beyond that, I would say that my my thinking expression is because there are so many things that I want to tell writers but I'm trying to limit myself I think I would say that my top piece of advice is to just get it finished because any book that is finished is already better than 99% of books ever begun because it finishes but I would also say that you can't make an entire movie just so that you get to stand on the red carpet at the Oscars. You can't run an entire 100-metre race just for that 0.001 second when you cross the line. The process has to be what's enjoyable because you can't make someone publish it and you can't make anyone read it and you can't make anyone like it. If anyone cracks that code, obviously let me know. But you've got to love the process because the process is 99% of it. So... Do yeah. get it finished, but get it finished in a way that feels joyful and sustainable and, you know, that makes you happy. And that doesn't mean you're always having fun. Writing's really no, hard. Not. Writing, not you, should, you should have seen me drafting today. I was pulling all kinds of faces, <laughs> but I still love it. It's still good fun. It's still something that ultimately fills my bucket rather than, than draining me. And you'd still be doing it even if you weren't getting published or you weren't getting awards you'd probably still be doing it I think in your heart I tried at one point I tried not to write I tried to give up writing because it was making me a bit miserable and it was after I'd been published with my first novel but yeah and I Mm -hmm. tried to give up and it was like something was really drastically missing in my life and that's when I was yeah Back in, I'm going to say 2018, I think I had a a month off, which had never happened to me before, but just every book was either with a critique partner or an editor or done or whatever, and I was sitting and I didn't have anything to do until this was September, until October when I knew things would come back. So I sat there twiddling my thumbs and my agent was like, Amy, just take a break, just sit, just stop. But the problem is what I do for fun is I write. So I ended up selling a trilogy and enrolling in a PhD in creative writing. Um, <laughs> I just, it's what I would do. It's what I do for fun. Yeah. I love it. And it doesn't mean it's not hard, but I think sometimes we mistake, we think that just because something's hard doesn't mean it can be fun. And actually yeah. hard things can be fun too. Hard things can be incredibly satisfying. So Absolutely. I think my advice would be as you get yourself down the road and finish it, do it in a way that's joyful for you because it's all process. You've got to find a way to love the process. Yeah. If any listeners want more writing tips from Amy, and she's got lots of absolute gems in her on writing podcast, as well as with Kate on the, the what's your other podcast called? On Pub Dates, yeah. Pub Dates, yeah. 
And if you, the newsletter is great because you get insider pictures and photos and behind the scenes of the book. So that's really great on the newsletter. Mm -hmm. So sign up for the Pub Dates newsletter. When can we expect to see book two of ours? What's the title yet? Uh, it's a running joke with my with my newsletter subscribers and I would say if you want to know any of this stuff the place to be is always amykoffman.substack.com that's I write a monthly letter to readers talk about whatever's going on for me the running joke with my subscribers at the moment is that we've got the Isles of the Gods and the title of the book because I don't know what it's called and we are getting real close to the day I'm going to need to know. So I came up with my first shortlist candidate the other day, but it's not quite right. So heaven only knows. Oh, I Titles are hard, man. But no, look, it'll be out in 2024. They're usually about okay. a year apart. So I don't know that it'll be 100% May 2024, but it's a good way down the road. So it'll be about the usual year. Yeah. It's been amazing talking to you, Amy. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And Thank you for having me all your projects and i hope you get a dream night of sleep tonight (laughs) don't we all (laughs) um and uh, take care thanks for listening to rights for women i hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest if you did i'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. Mm-hmm.